Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. As a teenager growing up in Brooklyn, New York, Alan Dershowitz was not such a good student. Nor, for that matter, was he a well-behaved one. In fact, at the Jewish Orthodox high school that he went to, he repeatedly drew F-minuses in conduct. However, by the time he graduated from Brooklyn College, he had somehow gotten his act together, and at the age of 28, he became the youngest full professor in the history of Harvard University's law school. Last October, he published his 30th book, a novel entitled The Trials of Zion. Five years ago, when I interviewed Professor Dershowitz for California Lawyer magazine, he told me that he was a divider, not a uniter. He said, quote, I'm not loved by the left or the right or the center. I manage to alienate them all. In early October, when I met him at Harvard for a second interview, I asked him whether there was ever a time in his life when he felt uncomfortable about making enemies. Here's what he had to say. I love my enemies list. Uh, I look at it all the time, and I'm so proud of the people who hate me because those are people I'd like to have hate me. Uh-huh. Uh, people on the extremes of the right, extremes of the left, people who don't think for themselves, people who distort. Uh, so you're judged not only by your friends but by your enemies, and I have a lot of enemies because I do provoke. Uh, it's part of my job. Uh, as a professor, I'm supposed to be challenging. Uh, everything. Uh, I challenge in class and I challenge out of class. So I offend people. People who know me, I think, like me. I get along very well with my you know, friends and family. But in my public life, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a provocateur. And as a provocateur, I'm more likely to make enemies than friends. Who are the enemies you're most proud of? Oh, people like Noam Chomsky and people like Pat Buchanan to talk about extremists on the hard right and the hard left. I can hardly tell them apart sometimes. Uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, he used to be a friend, though, used right? used to be a friend. Bishop Tutu. Uh, you know, people get very upset when I tell the truth about Bishop Tutu, that he's an absolute bigot uh, mm-hmm. and that he only cares about himself and his own people and that he uh, focuses... Uh, calls Israel a criminal state, doesn't like Jews very much, doesn't like Zionists very much. Uh, he's an awful man. Uh, the, the distinction between his uh, public credibility and his real credibility is probably wider than any human being on earth. So I love to attack icons. And I tell my students that don't have heroes. All your heroes will have clay feet. All my heroes have had clay feet. I've never had a perfect hero. I've had people I've admired enormously, but then I find out things uh, about them, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, make sure you're set up for the disappointments that you'll get in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you weren't exactly a model child, a model adolescent. Uh, uh, you you acknowledge that you belong to a gang called well, the Shields, a Jewish gang. You know, it wasn't like Murder Incorporated. We were a bunch of kids who pretended to be tougher than we were. You know, we wore our, our, our T-shirts uh, rolled up with a pack of cigarettes in them. Uh, we pretended to be what we call hard guys. Uh, our jackets were chartreuse and black, uh, which the school immediately banned. Uh, but, you know, we got into some street fights. 
mostly it was pretty innocent stuff. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a West Side Story. We didn't have knives. We didn't have weapons, though. I did. Well, you wear said you had not a, a knife, but you never I had took a, it out. I, I had a, a razor blade in my wallet, uh -huh. and I also had a sharpened garrison belt. Uh -huh. And you want to hear something? This is amazing. But you're not so far from your youth. I still wear to this day. I wear a garrison belt. I wear a heavy belt. This is my anti-terrorist belt. I'm not going down. If I'm on an airplane and there's some terrorist out there, I'm 72 years old, but I'm taking that son of a... I'm taking him on. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going down easily. This is my remnant of my early youth. I still haven't I'm given glad, this I'm glad, by up. the way, you didn't say bitch. This is a family show oh, sure. after all. Yeah, I would never yeah, say anything yeah. like that. <laughs> well, you also uh, say that you got uh, at the Jewish Orthodox high school you went to you drew F minuses in conduct. Now, in the neighborhood that I was born and raised in, anything below a D plus was showing off. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> was what what exactly did you do to draw F minuses in conduct? Well, first of all, I was always involved in, in physical fights. I took on bullies. Um, I remember when there was a kid from the adjoining public high school who used to throw rocks at us when we were playing basketball and shout anti-Semitic phrases, I took him on, and I beat him up, and I became a little bit of a, a hero, but my principal didn't like it. Um, I used to cut school a lot. I used to go to baseball games, Brooklyn Dodger games. Uh, I organized the bowling league uh, where I made money. I got a kickback. That sounds subversive. A, a nickel uh, a frame from yeah. the bowling alley guy to all the guys I could bring in, and I brought them in during school. You know, we would have a deal where uh, I would signal them from outside, and they would have to go to the bathroom. And they would stay out 15 minutes, bowl a frame, I'd make my nickel. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, was, I was not a good, a good high school student. My principal called me in one day. This was a yeshiva, an orthodox yeshiva. My principal called me in and said, Dershowitz, what are we going to do with you? You've got a good mouth on you, but you don't have a good head. We've got to figure out something that you use your mouth a lot, but not your brains. He said, yeah, you should be either a lawyer or a conservative rabbi. This was, and that's a put-down. Oh, you couldn't imagine a worse put-down by an orthodox rabbi. He could have said reform. He couldn't even pronounce the word. <laughs> he would never say it. It wouldn't have come out. Well, then you went to Brooklyn College, and you say you, went, you got in by the skin of your teeth. Skin of my teeth. And then, uh, you know, there was this transformation, right? Oh. You, you went to, you got into Yale, and from there to Harvard. You know, my mother always said to me, get bees. Don't get C's, that's a scandal, a shanda, that was the word in Yiddish. And don't get A's, because if you get A's, you'll be a teacher. And, you know, teachers don't, do, don't make that much money. Get B's. I never got B's. In high school, it was C's and D's, and in college, it was all A's. And it just happened instantaneously well, like that. Can you explain it? I mean, to the millions of men and women who are worried about their wayward children... Did you have some sort of epiphany? I presume God didn't speak to you because you describe yourself as an agnostic. I'm so I don't know whether God spoke to me or not. <laughs> good point, good point. Uh, but, but can you explain what happened to you? Was there an epiphany of some sort? Or? I was always a bright kid, and my teachers just didn't appreciate me. I was very challenging, and I didn't do anything different in college except all my challenging and kind of, quote, creativity was rewarded in college. In high school, my rabbis would say to me, oh, you make a point. If your point was such a good one, the rabbis before you who were so much smarter than you would have thought of, thought of it first. And if they didn't think of it first, it's not such a good idea. I was put down constantly for my creativity. I'm always mm -hmm. trying to think about things in ways different than other people think about them. And in college, wow, 
I got A's for doing the same thing. I was getting C's in high school. So Orthodox high school, a Jewish Orthodox high school was not the best place for not you. Not the best place. I'm not sure any high school would have been the best place for me <laughs> because I just don't like to learn by rote. And, uh, you know, today there are some very creative high schools for kids. My kids and grandkids went to great creative high schools. And maybe I would have been a better high school student then. But I, I was destined not to be a high school student. I was so lucky because to get into Brooklyn College talk about sexism. In those days, you needed an 88 average if you were a girl and an 82 average if you were a boy. Imagine the lawsuit mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't have anything close to it. I had like a 68 average. But you could get in if you had a combined score on a test and your average of whatever that number was. And I needed a 99 or better in mm -hmm. the test to get in. And I just made it. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you got into Harvard. Well, you became a professor at Harvard at the age of 25. Right. Assistant and then, professor at and 25. Then in, in 1972, you got a fair amount of press attention for the first time, representing a young man named Sidney Sheldon. This uh, no, no, named Sheldon Siegel. S Sheldon Siegel, that's Sheldon right. Sheldon Siegel, okay. right. Okay, and, and he, uh, he was a guy, well, he, was, he knew him. He yeah, had gone to the same right. Orthodox high school you went to, uh, and correct? And his sister and I used to dance together, and we were in the same kind of flirty social circle, and his parents and my parents knew each other, and, and the guy was facing the death penalty right. for murder. He didn't go to Yale or Harvard, but he did <laughs> join the Jewish Defense League, this right. radical, violent, right-wing organization, and he was accused of making, making bomb a bomb that, that, that resulted in the death of a young Jewish woman in Saul Yurok's office. He yes. couldn't get a real lawyer. Yes. Because none of the liberals... And Yorok was a guy who did... He was a music impresario. Right, right. Who right. sponsored these cultural exchanges between the United States and the Soviet Union. Right. JDL did not look fondly on that activity. No, they wanted to stop it. Uh, uh -huh. They would have slogans like, bombs for balalaikas, bullets for ballerinas. Yeah. And they would yeah. throw smoke bombs at the Carnegie Hall. And uh, Saul Yorok, who was Jewish, was right. their enemy. And right. tragically, a young woman was killed who was a, the, the daughter of a prominent... Jewish family. Now, you uh, got Mr. Siegel off on what some might disapprovingly describe as a technicality. Well, it was a constitutional argument, right. a very important constitutional <laughs> argument. I about say the some. Amendment. Some might describe Some did, right. And then, uh, and then along the way, during the trial, you really upset the trial judge when during one of your cross-examinations, you misled a law enforcement officer. I deliberately misled And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about right. that. Right. Uh, I knew he was lying. Uh, and I had to prove he was lying. It was essential to prove he was lying. And uh, so unknown to him, my client had made some tapes of conversations with him, but it didn't include the crucial lie that he was telling. So I did a cross-examination by which I first read him from the tape-recorded conversation, shocked him. He didn't know he had been taped. And, um, and then I let him think that the crucial conversation had been taped, uh, because I read him from a transcript, not of the tape, but of my client's best recollection of what happened, not telling him mm -hmm. that it was taped or untaped. He thought it was taped and admitted the conversation, mm -hmm. and that resulted in us winning the case, but the judge was furious at me. He thought you had done something unethical. He thought that, and he was wrong. Uh, I was able to show him that Abraham Lincoln did the same thing uh -huh. in a famous case um, before he became president, obviously, and that it was perfectly proper to mislead a witness on cross-examination by letting him think uh, something was taped when it wasn't taped. 
what happened to, Sid, uh, to, to Mr. Siegel? Uh, Sheldon Siegel eventually moved to Israel and uh, died at a very young age. Uh, he needed a heart transplant, and he got one, but it failed. Uh, he remained somewhat radical, but he stayed out of trouble. He never committed any additional crimes. Mm -hmm. That was 40 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, uh, th through the prism of 9-11 and everything that's happened since then, do you view that case any differently than you do now? I mean, in many ways, it was sort of a, a preview of what was to come. The Nixon administration was freaking out about the JDL, and it right. clearly was a violent organization. They were uh, intending to try to kill the Russian ambassador, the Soviet ambassador to the United States. In that fact, did they have goal. a drone built to, with dynamite that was supposed to go into an embassy? That's right. And not only kill the, the, the Soviet ambassador, but perhaps his family as well. These were very, very dangerous uh, yeah. young uh, men and women. Um, and, of course, once 9-11 struck, uh, the parallels became very clear. Mm -hmm. And the way in which law enforcement uses potential sources of information, uh, misleading them and uh, tricking them and threatening them, is very common today. Yeah. So, in fact, I wrote, wrote a book about that case called The Best Defense. And when you go back and read the chapter on the Jewish Defense League case, it, it looks like it's ripped out of today's headlines with right. today's terrorists, except the ethnicity is different. So do you look at that case any differently now than you did back then when you were defending that? No, I'm proud of the fact that I raised important constitutional issues and gave a man a defense who was not able otherwise to get a defense. I would do the same thing today for an Arab American uh, who was... Uh, charged with comparable offenses. I didn't do it only because I grew up with this kid. I mean, that's how I got the case. I mm -hmm. wasn't a real lawyer at the time. He couldn't get a real lawyer, so he, you know, went to the professor. When I read your works from chutzpah to uh, why terrorism works to your book on preemption, two Dershowitzes come through to me. Uh, one Dershowitz is the civil libertarian lawyer, the, the, the lawyer who talks about going right up to the ethical edge right. to defend the guilty so that the innocent have a fighting chance. Uh, it's the Dershowitz who writes, in the long run, abuses of the state are far more damaging to liberty and democracy than individual criminal conduct. Uh, you also write, if hard cases make bad law, then wars make even worse law. That's, right. That's one Dershowitz. And then the other Dershowitz is someone who it seems to me sympathizes with the needs and the concerns of what you call the preventative state. This is the state that's certainly been in ascendance since 9-11 mm -hmm. that uh, uh, looks at trying to uh, not only react to violence but prevent it. And, of course, it's in that context that we talk about preventative detentions and changing the rules of evidence right. and you know watering down constitutional safeguards. So... My question is this. I, I know that a big part of your life has been devoted to formulating a jurisprudence to more carefully regulate all of that. That's right. But how optimistic are you that this country, or any country for that matter, can carry on a prolonged preventative war against terrorism without gutting the constitutional uh, rights, uh, fundamental rights that you've championed so long. I think it's a great risk, and that's why in my writings on the preventive state, I'm actually writing a book called The Preventive State, mm -hmm. and in my book on preemption, which is a kind of prelude to that, I worry very much about the role that prevention plays. I understand it. I'm sympathetic to it. 
but I want to make sure it's channeled. I want to make sure that there is a jurisprudence that controls it and cabins it and constrains it. So there is only one Dershowitz, and that Dershowitz is, in his heart, uh, deeply a civil libertarian, but in his mind, somebody who wants to make sure that there are accurate and adequate procedures to constrain what I know is an impulse of the state today to act preventively. But no matter how carefully you construct these constraints, uh, is it possible to constrain that state enough without an inevitable erosion of what the civil libertarian Dershowitz believes in? I think there will be some erosion. The question is how much and the question is of what kind. And uh, I'm not the one who is pushing for the preventive state. The terrorists are the ones who are creating the need for a preventive state. It's going to happen, mm. no matter who the president is. Uh, Barack Obama is pushing very hard to do everything to prevent terrorist attacks. He's not going to use some of the methods of the Bush administration, thankfully. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of pressure. Bill Clinton, when he was on an NPR interview, said if he had to torture somebody to get the information necessary to stop an imminent terrorist attack, he would do so. This mm -hmm. is a, you know, a liberal democratic president. It's going to happen. So the question is not whether it's going to happen, but whether it happens with or without constraints. Whether it happens above the radar or below the radar. The Bush administration wanted it below the radar. Mm -hmm. I want to see it above the radar. On freedom of speech, uh, you've described yourself uh, as a relative absolutist. That's right. What, what, what is that? Well, first of all, I'm a relativist about everything. Uh -huh. I don't think there are absolutes in, in life. I think everything is, is relative. I'm a relativist in philosophy. I know that's a dirty word, but that's who I am. Uh -huh. And um, I'm a relativist culturally. I'm just a relativist. Um, the thing I'm most absolute on among my relative general approach is speech. I've never seen a case where I would actually have the government come in and ban speech before it occurred. But I can imagine a situation where that might be necessary. So I'm not going to say that there's no situation ever uh, in which some kind of government channeling or restriction on speech is going to be possible. But I've never seen it. And I'm going to push as hard as I can not to allow suppression of free speech. I think that's the core essential lubrication for uh, democratic processes to work. Without that, there is no democracy. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting case now before the Supreme Court involving a, a, you know, there's a church This group. crazy church. They also yeah. pick at me. They've attacked yeah. me. Yeah. Um, uh, and they're just a bunch of horrible bullies. Just, just to lay the background, they, they were picketing a young man's funeral. A Marine. With, a Marine with placards saying, basically, this kid was going to go to hell because this young Marine happened to be gay. It's what just do, awful. What do, just think, awful. what do you think? How do you think I the know how rule? I think the how case you think should come out. The yeah. case should come out permitting the speech as really? horrible and disgusting and despicable as it is. Uh, but I'm not confident the Supreme Court will allow that speech. Uh, it's, I mean, it really tests the limits of mm -hmm. all of our tolerance. This is the kind of thing you just think, how could people do this? But then how again could people be Nazis and march through Skokie? How could people burn American flags? Uh, how can people burn Korans? Uh, people do it. In your book, Finding Jefferson, uh, you write about how in the fall of 1995, uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin wanted your advice. Wanted, he was planning a trip to America, 
and had wanted your advice on how to deal with mm -hmm. the hate speech that was being directed at him mm -hmm. by extreme Jewish right-wing right. groups. And uh, he wanted to, he was wrestling with it because he obviously valued freedom of speech. Um, that meeting was scheduled for that year on November 14th. That meeting never occurred because on November 4th he was assassinated by a Jewish extremist. Who had been influenced, obviously, yeah. by the free speech. So I'm curious if that meeting had occurred, what would you have said to Prime Minister Rabin? Boy, it would have been a tough meeting because uh, uh, he was asking me for whether or not you can have limitations on speech that incites. And the answer is you can, but only if it directly incites, only if it's a call for immediate action. You can't and shouldn't have limitations on, uh, on advocacy. On, uh, one of my first cases I ever had involved a Stanford University professor named Bruce Franklin, who I have nothing but contempt for. Mm -hmm. He's a miserable Stalinist. <laughs> but he, um, but he um, would make speeches like this. Wouldn't it be a good idea for some of you to take over the computation center and trash it and destroy it? I'm not suggesting you do it. But it would be a good idea. Right. And he managed to stay on the protected side of free speech. If he had said, do it, burn down the building, burn, 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 you know, that would have been an incitement not protected. These lines are very, very difficult ones between what can be prohibited under the Constitution and what is protected so under the as Constitution. As a practical matter, you couldn't have provided Prime Minister Rabin with much help with this. I don't think so. I think I would have uh, suggested on balance that. Uh, there'd be no restrictions on freedom of speech, and the tragic result is that he was killed, uh, as yeah. was uh, Anwar Sadat. Um, uh, free speech is dangerous. Nobody ever said it was going to be free. It's very risky. The only thing more dangerous is the alternative to free speech, which is a government system of censorship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the area of security, perhaps the most controversial thing that you talked about was the idea of making the government's involvement in torture more explicit. You talk about torture warrants. That's right. And the idea is that you know, rather than have whatever torture is done under the table without government sanction, mm -hmm. let's have a more open right. treatment. Well, you're, you're an honest man, and you are a smart man. You understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Most people who have commented on my procedure have just lied about it. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Jeremy Waldron, who's a colleague of mine at Harvard Law School, a brilliant guy, totally distorts yeah. uh, my approach. He says I'm in favor of torture. I'm not in favor yeah, of torture. I understand I'm that. against torture. Yeah. You understand it. He understands it. Yeah. But he creates a straw man, which he then attacks. Most of my colleagues who have attacked me on this totally distort my view. But just so I understand that, uh, you know, by making the arguments you were making, you were uh, saying, I think, that uh, you know, in rare ticking time bomb situations, it's uh, torture it should not is not morally impermissible. Well, I think it probably is morally impermissible. You, do, you think so? But I don't think we're going to stop it. I think it's going to happen. And for me, the key is when President Clinton said he would use it, uh, and of course George Bush used it. And I think any president would use it if he had a real ticking bomb case. So my, my argument is this. I'm not in favor of torture, morally or pragmatically, but it's going to happen. Just like I'm not in favor of the death penalty, it's going to happen. Would anybody want the death penalty to proceed without warrants, without uh, legalism? Uh, that doesn't mean I favor the death penalty. It doesn't mean I favor torture. I want to make sure if there is torture, which I wish there weren't, but if there is, I want to know about it. I want the government to have to get approval from a court. 
I want to see it visible. I want to see it above the radar screen. I want it government I want the people in this country to know about it so we can constrain it and control it. Nothing should happen beneath the radar in a democracy, uh, especially nothing bad like torture. Mm-hmm. And that's my view, not that I support or favor torture. And, and your position is that it's morally impermissible? I think it's morally impermissible. I can, ma- I can understand the moral argument in favor of it. Mm-hmm. If I had to vote, I would vote against it. But mm-hmm. I can't control it. I can't stop it. So if I can't stop it as an academic, I'm going to try to create a situation under which it's visible, constrained, limited, and perhaps the public gets so upset with it that maybe they could eventually abolish it. Mm-hmm. I guess the Connor argument is that once you issue a warrant, you eliminate the risk of getting prosecuted. That's right. And, and that should happen. And that there should are, be the case. And, but there are those who would argue that by taking a... I mean, is it too much to ask that when we ask young men and women to die in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and, or come home with grievous injuries, is, is it too much to ask of the people who would torture on our behalf that they risk prosecution because without that risk, we know that torture, no matter how carefully constrained, uh, requires that we embrace a mindset that can so easily metastasize. I agree with that. I agree with that, but I don't think we should be punishing the young agent on the ground who's told by his superior to torture, or the young CIA agent who's told by the Vice President of the United States, do whatever it takes. I don't think we should do that. I think if we're going to have torture from the very top, mm-hmm. the people on top should be held accountable and responsible, not the people on the ground who are simply uh, accepting what they're told to do and, and are being told that it's proper and acceptable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if we have a torture warrant, the, the origin of the warrant requirement under the Fourth Amendment is that it gave people uh, exemption from criminal or civil liability if they had a warrant, and that's a good thing. Um, and mm-hmm. that part of regularizing a process and, and making it subject to visibility and control by the judicial system. The, that's the rule of law. And Everything the, should be constrained by the rule of law. Nothing should operate outside the rule of law. And your hunch is by making it more visible, you may make it less uh, frequent. Absolutely. Than, Abu Ghraib would never have happened if we had a torture warrant. Yeah. Uh, nobody would have tolerated that kind of torture. Israel had a rather remarkable open discussion about, about all this, starting in 1987 with the Landau Commission. Yeah. I was part of that discussion. I uh-huh. wrote articles about it. I went right. to Israel. I made speeches about it. And I commended them for having an open and visible discussion. Of course, they were criticized for it yeah. uh, by many in the international community. But it was the only, it was the first time there was a completely open discussion about it. The second time was after 9-11 in our own country. Mm-hmm. And that Landau Commission, as I understand it, more or less gave the green light to what was described as moderate physical pressure. But then that was overruled by the Supreme right. Court of Israel. That's right. That's right. But, and, and between 1987 and 1999, when it was overruled, it's not as if those uh, 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 techniques were became rarer. Uh, no, I, because there was became, no cons- the, the Landau Commission didn't set up procedures. It uh-huh. didn't have a warrant requirement. It just basically said to the to the Shin Bet and to the Mossad, you do what you have to do, but you can't lie about it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't set up any procedure for it. And so my system has never really been tested I in see. Israel or the United States or anywhere else. And then, as you point out, the uh, Israeli Supreme Court in 1999, basically banned all those techniques. Uh, But did say, in a footnote, that if you had a real ticking bomb case and somebody felt it necessary to do what was required to elicit the information to prevent it, 
they might be able to raise that as a defense to a criminal charge under the concept right, of necessity. Right, but you wouldn't r remove the risk of a prosecution. That's right. I I mean, would, it's just a defense that you could invoke. And I don't uh, like that. Yeah. I don't want to put the burden on the young officer yeah. to have to raise a defense. I want him to be able to go to the Chief Justice in advance and say, tell me, is it right or is it wrong? Should I or shouldn't I? You take responsibility. Don't put the burden on me to do it and then have to face criminal charges. Yeah. With regards to what happened at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, it has been argued that lawyers like Jay Bybee and John Yu crossed the line, that they became, in effect, consigliaries, enabling criminal behavior. Uh, some people regard them as, as war criminals. What, what's, what is, how do you view Well, first of all, I've been described did? by some on the hard left as a war criminal just for writing a law review article uh -huh. uh, right. about torture warrants. So, you know, that phrase is just used, uh, thrown around uh, uh -huh. promiscuously as a political weapon. Sure. I don't have any, uh, I mean, I, was, I think that their memos were wrong, and I think that uh, Jack Goldsmith, my colleague, uh, who quit over those memos essentially, did mm -hmm. the right thing. But I can't describe them as war criminals. Uh, they were acting as lawyers. They thought they were correctly stating the law. I think they were wrong about it, but they were within the realm of a reasonable legal opinion. You think they were? Yes. So you don't view them as having not lived up to their responsibility? No. I mean, the opinions were very skewed. Very skewed. They were bad law. I mean, they were C minus. You, but you, you didn't uh, see any obvious bad faith in the writing of them. I didn't see bad faith. I thought they stretched. I thought they did what lawyers often do when they're asked by their clients. But that wasn't the, situ the relationship they had with the president or with the White House. They were to give an opinion, not a brief. That's a close question. When you're asked by the administration to give an opinion, uh, generally what the uh, request is is given us, give us an opinion that's consistent with what, what, what our politics Is that are. right? Is that what the Office I, of Legal Counsel is supposed uh, to do? Well, I think that's what the Office of Legal Counsel does. Um, <laughs> you know, when, this is coming back to your idea of being a realist, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred and uh, our most, some of our most distinguished professors were asked to give opinions as to whether or not uh, uh, a quarantine or a blockade of Cuba uh, was lawful, um, they stretched the law to give mm -hmm. President Kennedy what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, under, under the banner of prevention, it, it occurs to me that there may have been people that were uh, perfectly harmless who uh, ended up being ensnared by Guantanamo, of course. Of course. who because of the harsh treatment they've received are now rather dangerous. <laughs> under the banner of prevention, do you ever let them out? Uh, or do you keep them there without being charged of anything? You always have to let people out. There have to be limits on any preventive actions. Uh, you can't take the argument to its illogical conclusion, saying that danger is danger and therefore people can't be let out. It's a balance. You have to strike a balance. And you know, maybe preventive detention authorizes relatively brief detention, but unless you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that mm -hmm. the person has committed a crime, ultimately mm -hmm. they have to be let mm -hmm. out. This whole discussion about torture, I think, nicely segues into a more general discussion about justice and the nature of rights. Uh, you're a big admirer of Thomas Jefferson. I am. And uh, Jefferson, of course, believed in natural rights. And he and his colleagues invoked natural rights to justify the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. You think natural rights, is a, to, to quote Jeremy Bentham, is nonsense on stilts, right? Absolutely. So if Jefferson didn't have natural rights... How could he have justified this treachery that he was committing against the British crown? Well, 
every revolution is an act of lawbreaking, and there is no way he could have justified it legally. He might have been able to justify it morally. He probably could have looked to the very documents that justified some of the British revolutions mm -hmm. during their uh, history. Virtually every one of them required a, a break in the law. And you'll notice, interestingly enough, that the framers of uh, the American Republic used natural law in the Declaration of Independence, but totally rejected it when it came to the Constitution. Right. There isn't they a were word a about business at that God point. in the Constitution. There isn't a word about nature. There isn't a word about natural law. Uh, they were, you know, in the business of governing. They didn't want people to be able to invoke natural law to overcome positive law in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. I think Hannah Arendt once said the best way to turn a radical into a conservative is let them win the revolution. Mm. <laughs> You wrote in 2004, uh, I think, a wonderful book called Rights from, uh, Rights from Wrongs. Thank you. And uh, in that book, you try to carve out this middle ground between what you call the shadowy metaphysics of natural rights and the empty tautologies of legal positivism. Uh, I love that phrase. What exactly does that middle ground look like? It's a hard, it's a hard middle ground. I think rights come from wrongs. That right. is... If you look at the history of rights, they almost always follow a recognition that we did some terrible, terrible things. Uh, we wrote the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were the most important part of our Constitution in many ways, right after the Civil War. We recognized the horrors of slavery. Um, you know, we wrote um, the uh, various amendments uh, giving women the right to vote after we saw how terrible it was to discriminate based on gender. Uh, most of international humanitarian law grew out of the reactions to the First World War and the Second World War, particularly the mm -hmm. Second World War and the, the Holocaust, the Shoah. So uh, in my experience, virtually every right is historically contingent on the wrongs that it responded to. And I traced that actually back in a previous book to the uh, first two books of the Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. The first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, lists all the wrongs that could happen without law. And then you get the Ten Commandments that basically set up a legal response to the wrongs of the book of Genesis. And uh, so for me, rights are pragmatic. Morality is pragmatic. It grows out of a recognition. Right after this interview today, I am going to teach a freshman seminar, 18-year-old kids who come right out of high school. Mm -hmm. And the subject is, where does your morality come from? And by the end of the semester, I think the students do realize that many of their views about morality come from their experiences, their families' experiences, our country's experiences with wrongs. And that's the thesis of and, my and, book. And, and you argue that it's easier to recognize perfect injustice right. than perfect justice. We'll never agree on perfect justice. Uh, what, what is a utopia? Is right. it a place where everybody is equal? Is it a place where... Uh, people are given advantage based on the disadvantages they came with? Is it one that has separation of church and state or a merger of church and state? Nobody will ever agree on what the perfect society is, but we all know and recognize horrible injustices when we see them. I don't know whether that comes innately from Well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, like, if you're a, a 17th or 18th century plantation owner mm -hmm. and have 50 or 60 slaves, 
I mean, it looks like it's working. The slaves, uh, you know, you know, from the plantation owner's point of view, are meant to be there. Slavery was an institution that throughout most of human history had been accepted and embraced. Not only that, embraced. you find writings um, as late as the middle 19th century in 1850 on the virtues of slavery. Right. The Christian right to be a slave, somebody right. wrote about. Uh, they, they quote the Bible. After all, the perfect society was... They said Abraham, uh, and look at Abraham. He had slaves and, and others. Sure, you can find that. And, and uh, there comes a time, ultimately, when we recognize how horrible that is. It may take us time. How many years did we believe, and how many people still believe, that women must be treated uh, unequally and, and uh, that they are, quote, inferior intellectually? People have believed that for most of our history. Yeah. And my, well, my, how did we come to recognize slavery as being a horribly immoral thing? I guess it was the how the Civil War went, right? No, actually <laughs> it was all over the world we recognized that serfdom abolished yeah, in yeah. Russia at about the same time as we, we abolished. Were, we were one of the last ones Slavery, we were one of the last. Yeah. Uh, Britain had slaves. Yeah. Uh, many African countries had slaves. There came, a, you know, it's amazing how things coalesce mm-hmm. in history. Mm-hmm. Look at a century uh, around 500 years before the birth of, of Jesus. In the same period of time, rough period of time, we see Buddha, Confucius, Socrates. Um, the Bible mm-hmm. is put together all at one epoch in American history, in, in world history by people who didn't even know each other. Mm-hmm. And then we see the 19th century basically seeing the end of slavery, the 20th century seeing the beginnings of the end of discrimination against women, the 21st century the beginning of the end of discrimination against gays. These things seem to happen uh, in some order, but nobody is clear why. But ultimately, we do recognize the evils of horrible, horrible phenomenon, whether it be evil as bad as genocide or evil as bad as just outright discrimination. But we do recognize it, colonialism. That took a long time to recognize the evils of that. In your life, you've gone from being an Orthodox Jew to being a secular Jew to being an agnostic, but throughout your whole life, you've maintained a very strong sense of Jewishness. That's right. Uh, you said, in fact, that you both practice and teach the law Jewishly. What does that mean? Well, I've always been a skeptic. So even when I was an Orthodox Jew who never ate anything that was unkosher and never drove on the Sabbath and always had my pretty much always had my head covered. I was always a skeptic. I was always doubting it, but I just practiced. Uh, So my attitudes haven't changed that much, but I'm deeply Jewish. I'm deeply influenced by my background. Um, I'm uh, deeply influenced by my heritage, by the history of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Um, When I teach about the common law, I don't only teach Blackstone and English common law. I look at the Talmud, which is an early form of common law, uh, the responsa, rabbinical questions and answers. Um, I look at the teachings of Maimonides. I look at the teachings of uh, philosophers uh, over the range of uh, cultures, but I don't exclude uh, a Jewish culture. I do think I'm a product of my background, um, just like I think many women teach from, whether it's overtly or unconsciously from a feminist perspective and African-Americans, from uh, an Afrocentric perspective, uh, I am not uninfluenced by my Jewish uh, mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. 
You're no fan, of course, of uh, Christian nation amendments uh, to the Constitution. In fact, you argue that uh, the reason why uh, religion has thrived in this country is because there has been this separation of church and it's state. good for church. You know, the origin of separation of church and state, the wilderness and the garden, a metaphor was designed to protect the church from the undue secularizing influence of right. the government. Just this week I was in uh, Australia defending the Pope in a debate uh, at the Sydney Opera House uh, uh -huh. against the proposition that the Pope should be charged with uh, child abuse, uh -huh. uh, essentially for facilitating the terrible scandal. And my argument was essentially a separation of church and state uh, argument that the government has its own magisteria and the religion have its own magisteria and they have to be kept separate. It's good for the church, it's mm -hmm. good for the state, and it's very bad to mingle the two. So by that logic, did Israel do harm to Judaism when in 1953 it passed a law that basically put the authority of the state behind uh, a relatively small group of rabbis, high priests, if you will, yes. who control Yes, it was so a much. violation of everything that Zionism stood for. Uh, Theodor Herzl, uh, in his book, uh, The Jewish State, said, let the rabbis be kept in, in their synagogues, uh, let the priests be kept in their churches. Uh, he was a strong separationist. Uh, the founders of Israel were all secular uh, people, Weitzman and Ben-Gurion, and it was a tragic compromise that has had effects not only on freedom of religion in Israel, primarily for Jews, by the way, but also on politics because it's given the religious parties undue power and uh, some of them at least have not been uh, in favor of uh, compromised peace because they think that you know, God ordained that all mm -hmm. of uh, Israel should belong to the Jewish people. Um, God is not a very good facilitator of peace, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> human beings do a better job. kind of stirs job, things up, doesn't stirs it? Stirs things up yeah. a little bit, and especially when you have a monotheism where there's one God and he's ours, not right. yours. Right. Uh, it kind of creates all kinds of difficulties of making peace. Uh, let's talk some more about Israel. I mean, you've uh, shown no shortage of passion for that subject. Uh, in, in 2009, uh, in a speech that I saw on the Internet that uh, you gave, you, you said... If I were a citizen of Israel, I'd be a much tougher critic of Israel because you're entitled to demand more of your own country than you demand of any other country. And I, and I think that's sensible, but I'm just wondering how that translates in the particulars. Uh, you know, in a given instance, um, how do you decide that what, say, Amos Oz is saying or Marin Benvenisti, or Abraham Berg, or uh, uh, Amos Alone are saying, are things that Alan Dershowitz can't or shouldn't say, even though in your heart of hearts you agree with what they're saying? Well, I do say it. I mean, uh, Amos Oz is a friend of mine, and I tend to agree almost, almost completely with his approach to things. Mm -hmm. Amos Oz is very tough on Israel's security, as am I, but very critical of Israel's settlement policies and sometimes its unwillingness to uh, compromise politically uh, to make peace. Um, uh, the fear, I think it's because there's such an effort to delegitimize Israel today, to demonize it, to single yeah. it out, yeah. to make it the only country subject to boycotts and divestments, that there is a fear of criticizing Israel even when it deserves to be criticized for fear that it will give ammunition to those who will misuse the criticism in an effort to delegitimate. And so the delegitimators have made it harder to criticize Israel. It's backfired. Mm -hmm. It hasn't worked effectively. 
I would love to feel freer to criticize Israel, and I do. Uh, one of the reasons I think I make the case for Israel strongly is I only make the 80% case. I make the case where Amos Oz and Benjamin Netanyahu agree. They don't agree all that much about particular things, but where they do agree, I can make that case. And in my book, The mm. Case for Peace, for example, I had a blurb in the back from Amos Oz and from uh, then Prime Minister Sharon. And when the two of them can agree, that's the case I try to make for Israel, the case where there's widespread agreement, it's right to exist, it's right to thrive, yeah. it's right to defend itself, it's right to be a secular Jewish democracy, but not necessarily. It's right to have settlements in the heart of the West Bank, and not necessarily it's right to take every action it chooses to in the name of security. Well, let me give you another particular. Uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when a lot of liberal Jews in this country were uh, arguing for the boycott of South Africa. Uh, at that very time, Israel was cultivating a very close relationship with South Africa. Off-limits or on? Well, or is... uh, I was critical of Israel's actions, but I also put it in context. Every Arab country was having close relationships with mm -hmm. uh, South Africa. It was pragmatic. Israel had a better reason for having a relationship with South Africa than Saudi Arabia did, and other Arab countries, almost nobody supported Israel at the UN, except occasionally mm -hmm. uh, South Africa. But mm -hmm. it was a mistake, and um, I also criticized Israel for not being willing to call um, the Turkish uh, genocide against the Armenians by its proper name. Yeah. Um, so I've been critical of a lot of Israel's actions and inactions, but I generally defend its right to defend itself by proportionate and reasonable means. I also make a distinction. Take, for example, the war in Gaza. I was not a big fan of that war, but I think Israel had the right to engage in it. So I distinguish between Israel's right under international law and whether it was a wise thing to do. And uh, mm -hmm. that distinction often gets lost in the cacophony of criticism and demonization of Israel. The media is not a place where uh, nuances... Uh, well, you try uh, to bring nuance <laughs> to the media, even, even though it's hard to do. Yeah. You've argued that you know, Israel uh, is uh, held to a higher standard. Absolutely. And I, and I think you're absolutely right about that. But, but, but here's the thing. You know, I, when I went to Hebrew school, and I was uh, probably as bad a Hebrew school student <laughs> as you were an Orthodox <laughs> high school student, but one of the things I thought I got from them uh, was that uh, deeply embedded in the history and culture of the Jewish people was this sense of exceptionalism. We were the chosen people. Israel was to be a light onto nations. Uh, Ben-Gurion talks about Israel as being a model for the redemption of, of the human race. So as, with that as a background, it seems to me natural uh, that many people, many Jews, would hold Israel to a higher standard without necessarily being anti-Semitic about well, it. Well, I don't think it's anti-Semitic at all, and I think Israelis have a right to hold Israel to a higher standard. I think that American Jews who are very strongly identified with Israel have a right to hold it to a higher standard, but Noam Chomsky doesn't have a right to hold it to a higher standard. The UN doesn't have a right to hold it to a higher standard. The Vatican doesn't have a right to hold it to mm -hmm. a higher standard. Mm -hmm. The Lutheran Church doesn't have a right the, the, the Presbyterians don't have a right to hold it to a higher standard. They only have the right to demand of Israel yeah. what they demand of Cuba and of China and of the United States and of Great Britain. If you look at the comparisons, what Great Britain did in Kenya, my God, makes anything Israel ever did uh, pale in comparison with what the French did in Algeria, what the Chinese are doing in Tibet. 
what uh, African countries have done, many to their own uh, people, what's going on in Zimbabwe uh, today. Uh, remember that during the Cambodian genocides, 1975, what was going on in 1975? Cambodia, Pol Pot was killing three million people. Chomsky was denying it, saying it's only the Western media. The UN was debating whether Zionism was racism. They weren't spending a minute on uh, looking at what was going on in Cambodia. The victims of the double standard directed against Israel aren't Israelis. The victims are the people who died in Cambodia, the people who died in the Sudan, the people who died in Rwanda, the people who died in uh, Tria, the people who died in all the places where there have been preventable genocides because the world is focused almost exclusively on Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some people have expressed a certain disappointment for Israel for not speaking out more forcefully against some of those other atrocities and outside of them. And, and there's a sense... But Israel, also, more than almost any other country, has. Yeah. You can, look, you can criticize the United States. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton did not step up and do very much about what was going on in many parts of the world. Neither right. did Jimmy Carter. Um, uh, so, again, you can say Israel should have spoken out more mm -hmm. vigorously, but so should all the other countries of the world. And Israel has sent relief efforts. And there are Cambodians that live in Israel today. And there are uh, people from the Sudan who live in Israel today. So it's a mixed it's picture a mixed all over the yeah. world. But you mentioned the Turkish genocide situation. I mean, is there the sense in Israel at all that to talk too much or too forthrightly about the horrible things that happen in other parts of the world waters down the horror of the Holocaust in people's so. mind? Look at Elie Wiesel, who was a victim of the Holocaust, yeah. speaks out eloquently on every potential genocide anywhere in the world. Um, I think that uh, if you look at the Wiesenthal Center um, in, in L.A., if you look at Facing History in Boston, these are all organizations that use the Holocaust as a way of explaining horrible genocides all over in a way of educating people about the horrors of genocide. Mm -hmm. And I think, look, Jews were among the first to jump uh, on the issue of Darfur, among the first to jump on the issue of Rwanda. So um, enough? No, not enough. Everybody should do more about mm -hmm. that. As we're talking, there are peace talks that are, appear to be on the verge of dissolving. Yep. Uh, the question is whether or not Netanyahu will compromise, will extend the, the moratorium on settlements. Uh, should the United States be willing to apply uh, sticks as well as carrots to get him to do Absolutely. the right thing? Absolutely, and both sticks and carrots to the Palestinians. The Palestinians also have to freeze. They have to freeze incitement. They have to stop naming squares after murderers. They have to stop having on Palestinian pub authorized television uh, all these horrible anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist diatribes, both sides have to show some willingness to uh, compromise. I hope a compromise will be reached, but if the settlements do continue, that should be part of the negotiation, and the Palestinians shouldn't walk away from the talks. The Palestinians have far more to gain from these talks than the Israelis do. Would you be in favor of the United States putting financial pressure on Israel? Perhaps the United States should put pressure on both sides, on mm -hmm. both sides, not not unilaterally, but uh, they should put pressure on both sides to continue the, the talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, in the mid-1980s, uh, you had, a, I guess, maybe three debates with uh, Meyer Kahana. I did, yeah. I mean, they were, I mean, I saw one of them, it was on the internet, and, and it was just, I thought it was just a fascinating encounter. And uh, Kahana had this kind of swagger about him. 
He was very articulate, and his uh, thesis, in essence, was that you can't have a democracy and a Jewish state. You have to choose between one or the other. And and you were at least as persuasive, uh, at least as articulate, arguing that uh, the strength of Judaism is in its pluralism and its humanitarianism. Mm -hmm. Uh, 25 years later, is it any clearer who was right? Yes, it's very clear that I was right. (laughs) Uh, You can't have a Jewish state, which is not a democracy. First of all, the Jews wouldn't accept it. They would leave. Uh, nobody would live in Kahana State. He'd have, you know, uh, 100,000 extremists uh, that would be at war all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked good questions, but his answers weren't good. The remarkable part of that debate is, you know, no, no quote, prominent establishment Jew would ever debate Kahana, yeah. would ever recognize him. And I was prepared to do that. And it, I was criticized both by the right and the left, the left for debating him, and the right because I think think I made some very good arguments against him. But um, I spoke to Meyer Kahana just three days before he was assassinated. Uh, he asked me to defend him when Brandeis wouldn't give him a platform, wouldn't allow him to speak, and hmm. three days later he was killed. Hmm. I would imagine that if, say, Kahana was to come back from the dead and sit here before us, he well, would... that would be the best proof that he was right. Uh, he came uh, back from clearly, the dead, clearly, guy, clearly. Well, yeah, but him, just so. leaving that aside, I mean, you know, I think I could hear him making, I think, what, on the face of it, might be a compelling case that at least history was moving in his mm-hmm. direction no, and not yours. So. Uh, I think he would point, perhaps, to the fact that when you and he debated, there were 44,000 settlers on the West Bank. Now there are 300,000. Uh, I think he could point to the rise of politicians like uh, Vigador Lieberman, uh, the, the continued strength of the religious parties. And, and there are any number of polls I think he could cite. Like uh, there was one poll just last March which showed that 56% of Jewish high school students believe Arab Israelis should not be allowed to vote. And that was up from 40% just two years before. And then another poll suggested that two-thirds of Jews oppose allocating Jewish uh, uh, national fund land to Arabs. Doesn't that all strongly weigh in Kahana's favor? Well, I think a lot of that is the result of the fact that the peace movement was weakened in Israel when Arafat walked away from the most generous offer ever made. Uh, you know, statehood, divided Jerusalem, end of the occupation, $35 billion uh, reparation for the refugee package. There was a lot of frustration. Yeah. Uh, polls point in m- many directions. Well, polls and the, and also the, show that 60-something percent of Israelis are prepared to give up land for peace and would like to see a more uh, secular uh, democracy. I think we're seeing trends in both directions, and it's too early to tell which will uh, prevail. Um, uh, we see now the uh, ascendancy of people like Avigdor Lieberman, but we also see Sipi Livni. Uh, having substantial support uh, in Israel. Uh, those issues in but a labor, democracy... labor Zionism is dead, isn't well, it, or more or less? And, you know, one could say that liberalism is dead in America. Uh, you know, you don't have politicians today claiming to be liberals. Uh, there are changes all the time. Uh, uh, the recent Australian election, the recent uh, British election, all over Europe conservative parties mm-hmm. have been dominating the election uh, results. So we're seeing trends all over the world, and focusing only on Israel, again, I think, fails to understand the larger picture. Yeah. 
What do you say to the Arab-Israeli citizen uh, who would ask you a very simple question? I could hear him saying, look, I I know that compared to other Arabs in other countries, I probably have it pretty good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Arab-Israelis have a higher literacy rate than Arabs in other countries. Our wives get to vote, which is not true in many Arabs' countries. You know, we're doing better in many ways than many Arabs in many other countries. But can I ever realistically hope to be a first-class Israeli citizen in a country that explicitly identifies itself as a Jewish state? Can I, can I ever be seen as an asset to the country rather than as part of the demographic time bomb? Yes, I think the answer is yes. I think with peace, that will come. Uh, the culture minister of Israel uh, is an Israeli uh, Arab. There are many in the Knesset and the Supreme Court. There are professors. Um, Could there ever be a, an Arab-Israeli prime minister? Is, can there ever be a Jewish president of the United States? Or a black president? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, these are, these are difficult questions. I mean, Israel uh, is the home of the Jewish people, and uh, it's unlikely that we'll see uh, in the near future, certainly, an Arab prime minister, but it's not unlikely that we'll see Arab justice ministers. There was a Jewish mayor of Dublin. Dublin is as Irish a city as you can get. Mm-hmm. With peace comes the prospect for real multiculturalism and real diversity. With war, it's much harder. Uh, there are polls that show that 90% of Israeli Arabs, given a choice to become citizens of a Palestinian state or remain citizens of Israel, would remain citizens of Israel. They have claims that are serious, and there were commission reports that show that there is discrimination. The Or Commission is uh, a good example. The Or Commission, yeah. and I support the Or Commission's conclusions, and if I were an Israeli, I'd be actively involved in trying to create equal rights for uh, Palestinians uh, and for Israelis. So would that mean changing the flag? Would it mean changing the national anthem? No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think if you look in Canada... Canada's national anthem uh, invokes God. Um, Many national anthems invoke uh, Christian images. Um, That doesn't mean that there aren't full rights for other people. Every Arab country is a Muslim country. Mm -hmm. Um, Israel has the right to uh, have a national anthem that reflects its heritage and its background. Remember, the Israeli national anthem started out as the Zionist anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it ended uh, differently than it ends today uh, to be a free person to, to return to our land and be a free person uh, was the Zionist anthem and it's perfectly okay for a country to accept that as its national anthem and the, the flag of Israel uh, how many flags of how many countries today have crosses on them or crescents on them mm-hmm. why single out only Israel mm-hmm. for uh, criticism if there's one group of people that deserves a state more than any other it's the Jewish people because of the history of discrimination mm-hmm. and the refusal of countries to take them in during the Holocaust so the, the law of return is a right based on a wrong yeah. and the creation of Israel as the homeland for the Jewish people is a right from a wrong. And if you're going to start abolishing countries based on uh, ethnicity or religion, Israel should not be the first to be abolished. Perhaps it should be the last. Uh, Tony Jutt, who died recently, he's a guy who was you know, uh, once a very strong supporter of Israel. 
and like a lot mm -hmm. of liberal Jews, became disillusioned. Mm -hmm. uh, he he wrote uh, in, in uh, I guess two or three years ago, a state in which Jews and Jewish re religion have exclusive privilege from which non-Jewish citizens are forever excluded is an anachronism. It's just uh, not Israel, though. She's wrong about that. Tony Judd, when it came to Israel, was, yeah. was ignorant and also not a liberal, but an extreme radical. Uh, he thought that the creation of Israel was a mistake. He opposed the two-state solution. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I challenged him to a debate at NYU, and he refused to debate me. Hmm. A lot of uh, people refuse you, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Some people do accept it. We have, we have good debates. Well, you know, you, you leave the door open in, in your book, uh, The Vanishing American Jew, to something very different from what's, what Israel is now. You write, quote, maybe Israel will not endure forever as a Jewish state. Maybe it will normalize, as Theodor Herzl put it, and become like most other states, which began as religious but became secular and multicultural over time. I think what's ambiguous about that passage is it's unclear to me whether you think that that would be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, obviously, APEC would think that that's a terrible I think, thing. I think it would be a good thing over time if it happened naturally as the result of democratic processes and as a result of peace. Um, uh, for me, that would be a natural development uh, and a good development, but uh, it so would it wouldn't have be to the come Jewish from state? inside. It wouldn't be the Jewish it state? It would be then. the state. Uh, of the Jewish people in the way France is the state of the French people, but gradually all the various manifestations of it in law would uh, disappear through democratic choice and democratic processes. Uh, look, the Jewish people are changing dramatically. In two or three hundred years in America, um, most Jews will be people of Jewish heritage or Jewish background. They will have one parent or one grandparent or two grandparents. Uh, there'll be uh, a large group of Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. The nature of Judaism, the nature of the Jewish people will change, the nature of Israel will change, the nature of the world changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, peace is the best facilitator of change. And when you have every Arab country still determined to destroy Israel, it's not the best atmosphere for creating this kind of change. I think peace is what will bring about uh, demographic and, and, and democratic changes. Both Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert have both said that if there isn't a peace agreement soon, Israel will descend into an apartheid state. I don't I, think they're right about that. I mean, that was the word Jimmy Carter used. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's not, you know. I, I don't think they understand apartheid. Um, I understand apartheid. I was one of the lawyers who worked on behalf of Nelson Mandela. Israel bears no relationship whatsoever to anything like an apartheid state. It is a disservice to those who fought and died against apartheid to use analogies like that. They're simple, they're sloppy, they're wrong. Even when former Israeli prime ministers use it. Former Israeli prime ministers are often wrong, uh, <laughs> and they're wrong in this case. And sometimes they're, they're wrong even when they're current prime ministers, That's right. Right? right? Which brings me to Netanyahu. You know, we only have time for one more question. Okay, is, 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 this, the, is this the guy to make peace, the guy who has you know, uh, opposed so much in terms of the peace effort, who, who promised uh, just before his election that he would not dismantle a single settlement? 
this is the guy who you know uh, just reprinted a book uh, last year arguing at length as to why a Palestinian state would pose a mortal threat to Israel. Is this the guy that's going to bring peace to, to, to Israel? Israel's a democratic country. It selected Benjamin Netanyahu. I've known him for 30 years now. Um, I think he can bring about peace. He's a pragmatist. I spent a long, long evening with him recently when he offered me the job of being Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, a job that I could not accept because I'm an American. We had long, long talks, and I came away believing that he really wants to be the man who brings about a realistic peace with real security for Israel, whether or not he has a partner, whether or not... Are you optimistic that he's the guy? cautiously optimistic but realistic, and I think a lot of things have to come together for there to be peace. Okay, one last question. I notice in your books you 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 pepper them with jokes. What's your favorite Jewish joke? I guess my favorite Jewish joke is about Sam and Mo who uh, go to the same country club every day. They're 80 years old. They're widowers. Uh, One day, uh, Sam walks in with a beautiful 19-year-old supermodel on his arm. And Mo says, Sam, you know, you can't bring women like that in here. No, no, no. Don't be disrespectful. That's my new wife. Your new wife. Why would a beautiful young woman like that marry an old an old, rich, bald, uh, 80-year-old like you. Shh, don't tell her I lied about my age. You told her you were 70? No, jerk. I told her I was 90. <laughs> so that's Professor, it was, a great, it was a privilege. Thank my, you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.